0: Well, friends, um, can I just have that down a little bit? It's a bit echoey there, thanks. Um, as we look at these chapters, um, justice matters, doesn't it? Justice matters. Um, I-, I was thinking this week about those, uh, those shocking findings of Baroness Casey's report into the Met Police this week. Um, and, uh, well, fellow officers and members of the public who have um, evidently faced discrimination and misogyny and racism and homophobia at the hands of people that they are supposed to trust. Uh, And and imagine if the response to that report by the Met was just to say, no, we're not going to do anything. Yeah, you're probably right, but we're not going to do anything. We're just going to sweep it all under the carpet. Uh, We're just going to quietly forget it. There'd be an outcry, wouldn't there? There'd be an outcry. Justice matters. I was thinking about the post office scandal a few years ago. Do you you remember that? Um, 736 prosecutions for fraud by post office workers. 736 were declared unsafe when it came to light that it was the post office's computer system that seemed to be the cause of the problem rather than 736 dishonest workers. (laughs) gone down as UK's biggest miscarriage of justice the, the claims are still going on now imagine if the CPS you know the Crown Prosecution Service has said well yeah they, they, they probably were miscarriages of justice you know actually the guys I think they were all, they were all innocent but we're not going to take any action you know we're just going to sweep it under the carpet we're just going to we're just going to move on there would be outrage wouldn't there because justice matters you know, whether it's the verdicts of criminal courts or, or, or public inquiries or, or the referee's decision. Right, referee? <laughs> we long for justice to be done, don't we? Such that we give the judge or the, the referee or whoever credit for when a just penalty is awarded. And we are incensed when we believe that a miscarriage of justice has taken place. And people get off kind of scot-free or they get some meaningless punishment handed out instead. Justice matters. And, and one of the themes that runs through the book of Revelation is the theme of, of justice if, if you've been with us over the last few weeks we've been going through the book of Revelation together you'll have seen that Revelation is a book about now not simply a book about the future in other words it, it spans the whole period of, of what's called the, the last days and and so it, it covers what happens before uh, Christ returns between his resurrection and his return as, as well as when he returns uh, and we've seen three kind of recurring themes, haven't we? Uh, we've seen the sovereignty of God, um, that, that he's on the throne, that he's totally in charge, even over all the sort of chaos and evil that seems to control and run riot in our world. We, we've seen the victory of Christ, haven't we? That the big battle of Revelation is not Armageddon uh, in the future, but it's Calvary in the past, and Jesus has won the decisive victory there already. All that's left, if you like, is the, is the mopping up operation. Um, and we've seen the security of God's people. We've, we've seen that amidst all the chaos, we are secure, spiritually speaking. We're sealed with the seal of the Lamb, as chapter 7 uh, puts it. But, but alongside those three key themes runs this theme of God's Justice, and and again and again we're told in the book that justice will be done, that God will act in justice to punish wrongdoing, and especially on those who rebel against him and persecute God's people. Justice matters. Uh, you, you might remember in Chapter Six when we were there in verses nine to eleven as the, as the fifth seal was opened, and, and, and the people of god they 're under the altar aren 't they and they 're crying out for justice god 's people are crying out for justice to be done. they say, "O oh, Sovereign Lord, you know holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" But up until now in the book, we haven't really seen a satisfactory answer to that question, have we? In in chapter 6, they they were basically told to wait. Wait a little longer, you know, because the end hasn't come yet. But we haven't seen that end come yet in in the book, have we? Of course, the the trumpets, if if you remember, of chapters 8 and 9, they were a a partial answer uh, to that question. Um, The seventh trumpet of chapter 11 showed that judgment would come. But so far, we've not been given a clear picture of that that judgment of God. And of course, the more we've gone through the book, the more the cry of of God's people for justice, how long, O Lord, that's kind of been amplified, hasn't it? Because chapters 10 to 13 that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen, well, they've shown us, haven't they, that persecution for God's people is the norm. It's what we are to expect. In other words, there's going to be great trouble for those who follow the Lamb. And, and when we have to go through tough times, when we have to face being opposed or ostracized or, or just face scorn and derision from our friends and our family or, or, or work colleagues or school friends or whoever it is, we ask, don't we, Lord, how long? Well, as we get to the back end of this book now, we're going to find that that question starts to get answered. As John shows us that justice will be done And it will be seen to be done. And and, and these chapters this morning, they're effectively an answer to that cry of God's people. That question, how long, O Lord? Um, having said that we've we've bitten off a big chunk here haven't we four four chapters we're not going to get into all the details and there are lots of details Um, but what I'd love us to do across these four chapters uh, I think there are four characteristics of of God's judgment that get revealed here so we'll we'll look at each one but there's a sense in which uh, they kind of overlap each other somewhat as well remember revelation uh, is a bit like watching sport on the tv yeah you see the same events but from different angles, and there's some action replays going on as well, and and that's what's happening here too. John is showing us pictures of of judgment uh, that are working out now, as well as pictures of judgment uh, as they will happen at the very end of time. Uh, It's also worth saying, because you've probably picked this up from from reading these chapters, that they are some of the most sobering chapters in the whole of the Bible, Um, and and. You know, they're, they're as tough to preach as they are for you to hear. Um, but of course, we can't ignore, can we? We can't ignore what God clearly says just because it's sobering. You know, that would be not only foolish, but, but a dangerous thing to do. So however unsavory these, these chapters uh, we find these chapters, the task of God's people, of course, is to sit under God's word, not over it. Uh, so that we can see its implications for us. So we're going to look at judgment explained in chapter 14, judgment proclaimed in chapter 15, judgment experienced in chapter 16, and judgment expected in chapter 17. So here's judgment explained. Have a look at chapter 14. And friends, there are some disturbing, shocking uh, language in, in, uh, in this chapter, isn't there? But, but these words are written to warn us and to urge us to keep on, following Christ. Um, So let's have a look. You'll notice there's there's three angels bringing messages about final judgment to come in verses 6 to to 20. And and, and I want us to notice four things. Um, Notice first, when it comes to judgment, notice who is doing the judging. Okay, because verse 10 tells us that this judgment of those who reject God is taking place, look, end of verse 10, In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, Jesus, the Lamb, is present at this judgment. In other words, we're not to imagine that this is somehow not His doing, right? He's present, this is His work. Uh, And then notice in verse 14 that the one who's holding the sharp sickle of of God's judgment in his hand is one like a son of man. And and most of you will pick up, some of you will pick up, that's the same reference to Jesus that we saw back in in chapter 1, drawn from the book of Daniel, of course, in, in the Old Testament. So again, the clear message here is this Jesus is the one who is Lord over judgment. And of course, that's not a truth unique to the book of Revelation isn't it we're told lots of times throughout the New Testament that the person who will judge us is the Lord Jesus Christ himself okay the one who is actually uniquely qualified to be our judge because he understands humanity he knows what it's like to, to live the human life no one can accuse him of injustice he's, he's walked in our shoes as a man in, in fact as the only perfect man ever The God-man, the one who's fully human and yet fully God. And so he knows, he sees, he he understands all things. Jesus is our judge. The the one who is perfectly loving and perfectly compassionate and yet at the same time is perfectly just. Do do, do you see? The, The wrath of Jesus at human rebellion is just as much a part of his perfect nature as the love of Jesus is. We can't separate those two things. One is involved with the other. I think that's something we often fail to grasp, isn't it? So, so when we find this chapter on, on his judgment kind of hard to, to stomach, remember that the one who judges is Jesus The same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me and and cradled them in his arms. The same Jesus who touched the the lepers and the outcasts and and, and healed those people in society. This is the Jesus who judges. And and so really, friends, to, to reject the Bible's teaching on his justice is ultimately to reject the character of Jesus himself. Jesus is doing the judging here. Secondly, notice who the judgment is for, because verses 9 and 10 say, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. And and, and all the way through Revelation, we've been brought face to face, really, with this, this kind of division in humanity. Haven't we? You either worship the beast. We, we've seen that's that's kind of Satan and his forces of evil, or you worship the Lamb, Jesus. You're either marked with the mark of the beast, or you're sealed with the seal of the Lamb. You either face the wrath of the Lamb in the future, or you face the wrath of the beast now, as, as you're persecuted and opposed for following Jesus. And, and the question is, who do you want to follow? Whose wrath do you want to face? And John's point here is that you do not want to face the wrath of the Lamb. And the wrath of the Lamb is directed at those who follow the beast. In other words, those who reject the Lamb, Jesus, as their saviour, as their king, and, and go their own way instead. There might be lovely people. They might be from all kinds of walks of life and creeds and backgrounds. And, but John says that in their hearts they worship the beast. They, they, they don't follow Christ, they actually follow Satan, whether consciously or unconsciously. I and mean, that's, the, that's the plain teaching, really, not only of Revelation, but of the whole of the New Testament. That God's judgment will fall on those who reject Christ. So thirdly then, what will judgment be like? Have a, have a look from verse 9 again. Um, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. In other words, friends, this judgment is eternal. Right? The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who follow, uh, who follow the beast. And, and did you notice also in verse 10 that they drink the cup of God's wrath full strength? Because you see, friends, there's a, there's a sense in which the, the judgment of God that we see now, that we see in, in this world, you know, that the seals and the trumpets and some of the bowls were, were uh, uh, describing for us, those judgments are God's somewhat diluted wrath. In other words, he hasn't yet poured out his wrath on the earth full strength. That's, of course, because he's merciful. Because he's not yet giving us the judgment that our rebellion against him deserves. But he's he's being patient. He's giving the world more time and more opportunity to to turn away from rejecting him and come back to him in, in, in repentance. But the time will come, you know, at the end of time, when God's patience with us will stop and judgment will then be poured out on the earth full strength as it were and and yes we're we're right to see the language here as symbolic you know references to wine and cups of God's wrath or smoke of their torment and so on that that's not literal you know it's symbolic but friends it's not so symbolic that it's devoid of meaning (laughs) We're meant to read this and realize that the judgment to come is horrific. There's just no getting around that. Um, For example, if you look in verse 14 and onwards... Um, John describes two harvests did you you notice that in verses 14 to 16 judge judgment is pictured as a kind of grain harvest where the crop is is reaped it's it's cut down it's brought in for harvesting uh, and then look at the second harvest in verses 17 to 20 which is pictured as a grape harvest isn't it where, where verse 19 the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God and the wine Wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle—it's about four feet—for 1,600 stadia, which is about 180 miles. You see, you see the picture. It's horrible, isn't it? There's this great wine press, and grapes are kind of thrown in and trampled down until the juice flows out to, to be collected at the bottom. Except for here, it's people who are thrown into the press. And they're crushed until their blood flows out to the bottom. And it flows for 180 miles in every direction to a height of four feet. That's very gruesome, isn't it? It's a sobering picture. And, and of course, you know, many, many would say, and some of us are probably going to be thinking it too, how can a God of love do such a thing? I just can't believe in, in a God who would send people to hell because that's what's being described here. You know, that's a subject we could spend a long time answering, isn't it? But, but here are some things to think about. Remember that it's Jesus who spoke about hell most graphically and clearly. It's all over the Gospels. You just can't get away from it. And he's not lying. And he's not trying to scare us. He's telling us about hell because, as the God of love, he wants us to see we're rejecting him takes us. Another thing to think about is that God is the God of perfect justice. So so, although we can't fully grasp how horrific our sin is to him, how much of an insult our rejection of him is, he does grasp that. And so as a God of perfect justice, Well, we could be sure that no one will suffer in hell more than is right and just. And of course, if we say that that we can't believe in this God, well, then, friends, ultimately we can't believe in the cross either, can we? Because it was on the cross where Jesus bore hell for us. See, friends, somewhere along the line, Hell has to happen. Justice matters. And so the question is, who will it happen to? Will we allow Jesus to bear it for us? Or will we bear it ourselves? But, but the one thing I think we, we mustn't say is that we don't believe in a God who sends people to hell because hell is what he experienced himself in our place on the cross. So we've noticed who is doing the judging. Uh, we've noticed who the judgment is for. We've noticed what the judgment will be like. F- finally, in this chapter, notice that there is a way of not facing the judgment. And, and this is what the first five verses of, of the chapter uh, are all about. That there are a group of people who will not experience hell, and they are God's people. Okay? Those who have his seal of ownership on them, verse 1 such that they sing this new song of the Lamb's victory over sin, verse 3, because they've been redeemed. And why have they been redeemed? You know, is it, is it because they're better than everyone else? No. Christians deserve hell just as much as anyone. But rather the only difference is that God's people have been rescued. Okay, And we've been rescued through the cross of Christ, and that rescue is a gift that's open to everyone. So if you're not yet a Christian this morning, the good news is that there is a way of you not facing God's full strength judgment on your sin. And it's by receiving the gift of his rescue. As you trust yourself to the one who took God's judgment on your sin in your place. Who faced hell for you on the cross. So that you don't have to but can be forgiven instead. That's great news. But if chapter 14 shows us judgment explained, then chapter 15 shows us judgment proclaimed. Now, we didn't read this chapter, but you can, you can see if you have a look at it. This, this, kind of, this chapter builds on, on what we discovered in the last chapter as we get a picture of the people of God. So we've seen a few times, haven't we, in, in Revelation, that, that we get a picture of God's judgment, but then we get a picture of how in the midst of God's judgment, the people of God are secure. And, and if you look at verse 2 uh, of chapter 15, John sees a picture of the people of God victorious over the beast, right? It's a picture of the end when God's people are victorious. And do you notice that they're beside the seaside? You see, that's quite nice, isn't it, for us on the island? Well, at least they're, they're beside the sea, aren't they? Verse 2. And, and if you remember from chapter 13, the first beast came from the sea. Do you remember that? The sea symbolic, of course, for evil evil and and chaos uh, in in Jewish understanding. And and the language here takes us back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Do you remember? Where God's people are brought through the Red Sea to safety. And so to stand beside the sea here is kind of symbolic of standing in victory over the beast or the evil who came from the sea. And and so it's no surprise that the song they sing, verse 3 is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And that's because the victory achieved in Jesus is is the new Exodus. Isn't it? back Back in Exodus 15, do you remember? God's people sang Moses' song of victory and deliverance after God rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. But now God has rescued his people in a greater Exodus through the cross of Christ, the Lamb. And so here are the people of God, having conquered over the beast and the forces of evil, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And and friends, notice particularly verse 3, will you? Where the people of God proclaim God, uh, proclaim God to be just and true in his ways. Do you see that? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Nations. Who will not fear, O oh Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you, do you see, friends? God is righteous and true and just when he judges the earth. And God's people here have eyes to see that. And so they praise him. They proclaim And praise him for his judgment. You see that? And if it's not clear already that that judgment comes from the hand of God. Well look verses 7 to 8 make that crystal clear. As As the judgments of the bowls to come. Full of God's wrath. Verse 7. Where do they come from? They appear from his sanctuary. Verse 8. From the throne of God. To be poured out on the earth. Friend, I, I don't know about you, but as I read these verses, I, it deeply challenges me about the things I like to proclaim about God and praise Him for. Because, of course, we're, we're really happy to proclaim God's love, aren't we? Or, or, or to praise Him for the, the, His grace at the cross, or, or, or for His kindness and, and grace in our lives day, day by day. But how about His judgment? how about proclaiming and praising God for the reality of hell and judgment? How about doing that? That's a, that's a different matter, isn't it? Now, of course, you know, it would be wholly appropriate, wouldn't it, to sort of you know, do that in a kind of gloating way, or you know, gloating over those who face judgment. That's, that's kind of crass and dishonoring to, to God, of course. But there is a right sense, isn't there, of proclaiming and praising God for his justice. It is, after all, mark of God's character that he's perfect in his holiness and his justice as well as perfect in his love and his mercy and and the perfection of his justice is is no less an aspect of who he is than the perfection of his mercy it's something just as important and so something just as much to be delighted in and rejoiced over and proclaimed to others I think that if we struggle with that and I suspect all of us do I certainly do and we therefore wonder how on earth we as as one of God's people would be able to join in with that song of God's people and worship him for his righteous act in in sending rebellious people to their to their judgment if we struggle with that i think it reminds us just of the the truth that it's 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 not because god is anything less than perfect in his judgment but it's rather that we are still sinful so we don't see things from god's perspective we don't yet have a big enough understanding of, of who God is. So judgment explained, judgment proclaimed. Uh, and then thirdly, look in chapter 16, judgment experienced. And, and um, this is the chapter that tells us, we read this one, didn't we? It tells us about the seven bowls of God's judgment. So we had seven seals, seven trumpets of his judgment in earlier chapters. There's something a little bit different about these seven bowls of his judgment for for a start, if you flick back to chapter fifteen, verse one you'll see these are introduced as the seven last plagues and 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 last because with them the wrath of God is finished or completed and and whereas with the the seals and the trumpets, just a fourth or a third of the people or the land was destroyed. Do you mem- do you remember? Here, full judgment is seen. There are no fourths or thirds talked about here. So, so what do these bowls represent? Well, it's not quite the end. There is more judgment to come. We'll see that in chapter 19. So we're not at final judgment yet. But there is a kind of intensity about these seven bowls of God's judgment that we haven't seen before. And, and so, although I think we, we are seeing the, basically the same things just from a different perspective as with the seals and the, and the trumpets, where, where if you remember, though those judgments were warnings to repent, even though many didn't, here the judgment is, is kind of full The the bowls are last, I think, because John sees them last in, in his series of visions. And God's wrath is finished or completed in that for those on whom these judgments fall, well, the time for full judgment has come. You know, there's no more delay for them because they die. For them, their end has come. So, so what's going on in these verses? Bowls one to four describe disasters coming on the earth. You might have picked that up. And, and these are horrific judgments. They, they afflict people on the earth and the sea. Um, and notice in verse two that these are judgments on those who bore the mark of the beast. In other words, they're judgments on, on those who don't know aren't following. Lord Jesus. Now, let's, let's be clear, it's not that Christians don't suffer disasters in these last days, but it's just that here John is describing, uh, I think, specific judgments on those who refuse to worship God. Uh, and then if you look at verse, uh, bowl 5, sorry, in verses 10 and 11, you'll see this refers to judgment being poured out on the beast's throne, and, and darkness covers it. Do you, do you see that? Which is a reference to the fact that Satan's kingdom is darkness, In other words, when people decide to follow Satan as opposed to Jesus, they're they're given over to what they want, which is darkness. There's there's a sense in which God's judgment is to give people over to what they want. But bowls 6 and 7 describe something a bit different. And and, and here it seems that we are taken, I think, to the very end of human history. Because John describes this, this great battle taking place in verse 14 at a place called Armageddon, verse 16. The the, the place Armageddon. It's only mentioned here, just just one verse. But the the battle itself is is mentioned a few times in Revelation. And what it seems to be referring to is a kind of symbolic attack by Satan kind of one last time on God and his people. John calls it the battle. Uh, We'll see it described again in, in chapter 17 and 19 and 20. Uh, we saw something similar actually described back in chapter 11 as well when the two witnesses were killed, if if you remember. In other words, it's describing, uh, I think, that at the very end of the last days, you know, just before the Lord returns, there's a kind of climactic bout of persecution against God's people, if you like, which is symbolic of a battle, right? It's not not an actual physical battle. Don't think kind of Lord of the Rings and, you know that kind of thing. The the, the real point about the symbolic battle, however, and we'll see this more next week or next time, is that no sooner is it started than it's over. As the seventh angel pours out his bowl, verse 17, Jesus comes in final judgment to utterly destroy the forces of evil. That's what verses 17 to 21 are all about. Do, Do you see the point there? Satan might think that he can rise up and defeat God and his people. But there's no chance. There's no chance. He's instantly defeated. So again, friends, with these these seven bowls of chapter 16, we're seeing that God's judgment is falling now, throughout these last days. That's the first five bowls. But we're also being pointed towards the end. And, And the whole point of these judgments is that we're meant to see them as signs. Right? That kind of signs that the next big thing in God's diary, so to speak, is the return of Christ at the end of those last days. It might take a while to happen, but it might not. He comes unexpectedly like a thief, verse 15. So we don't know when that's going to happen. So we need to be ready for it to happen at any time. But did you notice what happens in verses 9 and, and also in verse 11? Because surely. You would think, with all this judgment from God, that it would make people repent, wouldn't you? But no, it leads to hard hearts and a refusal to come back to God. They did not repent and give him glory, verse 9. They did not repent of their deeds, verse 11. And so, friends, although you know, we'll be saddened, of course, we shouldn't be surprised When people turn their backs on God, even when facing some of the worst aspects of his judgment. For sure, by by God's grace, some will turn to God for help in those times. But actually for many, they'll just kind of shake their fist at God and curse him. I, I think it's quite sobering to realize that when judgment is experienced, people still refuse to repent such is our sin. So judgment explained, judgment proclaimed, judgment experienced. Finally, briefly, judgment expected in chapter 17. Uh, we didn't read this, but but we, we did have a peek at it the other week when we, we looked at the beast in, in chapter 13. We'll see a bit more of it next time as well, but just get a little taster of what's happening here. You, you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 17 that John sees a prostitute. Okay, verse 1, She's committed sexual adultery or, or, or a sexual immorality or adultery with the kings of the earth, verse 2. And not only that, but she's in league with the beast, verse 3. That's the first beast of, of, of chapter 13, which, if you remember, represented Satan working through, through the state, as it were, to, to oppose God's people. So it's not really a surprise that we're told that this woman, uh, verse 6, is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's a pretty grotesque image, isn't it, to show that this woman is responsible for the church's persecution. Uh, And if you look at verse 5, we're told who the woman is, and she's called Babylon now, in, in kind of uh, biblical terms, Babylon, it, it was a real kingdom back in 6th century BC, um, but, but also it had come to be a symbol of, of humanity in its opposition to God. So, so Babylon was kind of symbolic for, for humanity uh, indulging herself, kind of fattening herself on her wealth and her power and, and opposing anyone who... Who got in her way. Hence, a, a prostitute was quite an apt image to use, someone who would sell herself to the kind of the latest fad that came her way and kind of indulge herself until she was drunk on it all. Um, in other words, she represents human civilization proudly going its own way without any reference to God and, and actively opposing the people of God who, who, uh, because they lived a different way. Now, in John's time, of course, that that kind of uh, human pride and arrogance was perfectly pictured in the Roman Empire. There were some good things that happened in the Roman civilization, of course, but it was also a picture, wasn't it, of humanity indulging herself in in kind of every conceivable way, sexually, materially, religiously, and, and yet at the same time ignoring God. But but in verses 15 and 16, look, Babylon's fate is sealed and ironically, she's destroyed by the very being with whom she's formed an alliance because it's the beast that destroys her. In other words, it's a picture, friends, of how quickly human civilization can turn in on itself and, and implode and destroy itself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? See, this chapter tells us to expect judgment, right? There's no, there's no doubt about it that the judgment that was foretold, back, back in chapter 14, verse 18, you might remember, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Well, here in chapter 17, it's coming true. Friends, um, proud, sinful, indulgent, Humanity is heading for destruction. That's the message. Judgment expected. Now, I don't know about you, all this teaching on judgment gives us a huge challenge, doesn't it? Because in com- uncomfortable though it is, it leaves us in no doubt that judgment is coming. It's a certainty. That's what these chapters tell us, isn't it? It's been explained to us in chapter 14, to be it's to be proclaimed by us in chapter 15. It's being experienced by us now to a certain degree, chapter 16, and it's to be expected in all its fullness when God's judgment falls on Babylon, on sinful humanity, chapter 17. And friends, all of this is because justice matters. So how are we to act in the meantime? I think chapter 14 verse 17, uh, sorry, verse 7, kind of sums up the message. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Friends, when faced with the reality of judgment and, and hell itself, we need to ask ourselves, don't we, Who do we worship? The question these chapters pose for us is, who will drink the cup of God's wrath? Will we drink it ourselves, kind of proudly refusing to worship our Creator? Or will we allow Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath for us? Which is just what he did on the cross, isn't it? Because in order to spare us, From the righteous wrath of God on our sin. That is coming. Jesus himself experienced that wrath instead of us. As he was forsaken by God so that we wouldn't be. As he took God's judgment on our sin in our place. And so friends, if we are following Jesus, if we belong to him, and and you can do that this morning if you haven't already. All God's wrath that was being stored up against you was poured out on him instead. That's what happens when we become Christians, isn't it? So friend, who will you worship? I think that's the stark choice that this these chapters lay before us. And, and if we have decided to follow Christ already, I think the challenge to us in the meantime comes in chapter 14, verse 12, I think. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In other words, friends, remain faithful. Don't be swayed. Don't, don't let either the threats or the seductions of our culture draw us away from Christ. Recognize that it's Satan's influence that lies behind all of that. But that justice will be done. So keep faith. Shall we pray? Father, although these uh, chapters are so hard, they're uh, very hard for us to, uh, to, to teach and to hear yet we do acknowledge that justice matters and will be done. But, but that you warn us of this so that we would see the signs and soften our hearts and turn in repentance to you, the true and living God, and place our trust in the one who took our judgment for us on the cross. Father, please help us to do that this morning if we haven't already. Please help us to remain in it by your grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.